turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. This is the second to last Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I've been learning a lot about prayer over these weeks. Anybody else? Learning some things? Praying that God would uh, continue to make us into a praying church. Uh, Once you've found Matthew 6, 9 through 15, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. I remind you that this passage begins in verse 5 with Jesus saying, and when you pray, and then he tells them how not to pray, and then beginning in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of God. God. And you can be seated. Uh, From these verses this morning, I'll preach from the title, Forgiven and Forgiving. Forgiven and forgiving. And I'm a little bit tempted to just say that Marquita already preached my sermon. And so uh, if you took notes, you're pretty much good to go. Forgiven and forgiving. One of the uh, rituals of our society that I've noticed is what I will call and others have called the non-apology. Are you familiar with the non-apology? You know how it goes. Usually it's somebody famous, somebody well-known, somebody powerful who gets caught doing something wrong, cheating on their spouse, committing fraud, lying to get their children into a prestigious university. I'm just making these things up out of thin air. And so then what do they do? Then they call a news conference to apologize. Except that it's never quite an apology, is it? I'm sorry if. I'm sorry that you felt hurt. I heard a really good one on the news on Thursday. I'm sorry because this isn't who I am. She's like, well, then who, who did it then? And, and why are you up here talking to us about it? So given our collective allergy to apologizing, I think Jesus' instructions in this part of the prayer should make us pause. It's short, it's simple, and it's really, really direct. There's no backtracking. There's no ifs. Just forgive us as we have forgiven others. Jesus was very, very clear. He taught his disciples that their heavenly father connected being forgiven with forgiving others. Forgiveness is hard. Asking for forgiveness is is hard. Forgiving somebody who has hurt you is really hard. Over the past few days, I've had to ask for forgiveness from my wife, from one of my sons, from one of the members of the Sankofa trip that I was leading last weekend, and every single time, it was hard. Forgiveness is tough. But what I'm discovering over the course of my discipleship to Jesus is that forgiveness can also be very, very good. I'm discovering that Jesus' simple and direct instructions in this verse can, can actually rearrange my experience of forgiveness. Forgiveness is difficult. 
Sometimes it's deeply painful. Sometimes it seems impossible for very good reasons. But Jesus shows us that forgiveness is also very good. So here's what I want us to see in Jesus' simple instructions over the next few minutes. Because God has forgiven our sins, we can forgive those who sin against us. Because God has forgiven our sins, we can forgive those who sin against us. Now, there is a lot that we could say about forgiveness, but I'm going to stick to that very narrow lane. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to stir up the implications of Jesus' instructions in each of our own lives. Because God forgives my sins, I can forgive those who sin against me. In other words, how we experience forgiving others has everything to do with how we have experienced being forgiven ourselves. This connection between being forgiven and uh, forgiving others, being forgiven by God and forgiving those who have hurt us, this connection is not always intuitive to us. And it wasn't obvious to the first disciples either. In fact, Peter asks Jesus after listening to his teaching on forgiveness, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I can relate to Peter's question. What exactly, I wonder, is Jesus asking of me, of us Will God refuse to forgive my sins if I struggle to forgive somebody who's sinned against me? Somebody who's hurt me? It seems like Jesus understood our struggle to grasp this connection. Because he reiterates these instructions at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And then a handful of chapters later, he illustrates this instruction with a, with a parable. And so we're going to take each of these, the prayer, the reiteration, and the story, with the desire to understand this connection between forgiving others and experiencing God's forgiveness ourselves. So our verse this morning reads, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only part of the Lord's prayer that Jesus goes on to reiterate immediately following the prayer. We should notice that. In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is this connection between being forgiven and forgiving others is clearly very important to Jesus. He seems to really mean it. And so we need to pay attention. I would suggest, though, that, that Jesus' connection here between forgiving and being forgiven makes no sense to us if we view God's forgiveness as a transaction. If we think mostly about what God has done for us as, as God sending Jesus to die for our sins, offering us this, this gift, us then taking it and being forgiven and moving on, we will miss this connection. If our view of God's forgiveness is transactional in nature, we're going to always struggle with this. 
theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this view of forgiveness, this transactional view of forgiveness, cheap grace. I want to put up the first slide, Brittany. Bonhoeffer writes this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, this view of cheap grace means that I can therefore cling to my secular existence and remain as I was before, but with the added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. This, Bonhoeffer says, is cheap grace. It betrays a transactional understanding of forgiveness. The problem, though, is that the God of Scripture is not a transactional God. Grace is not a transaction, and neither is forgiveness. Instead, we've got to take Jesus on Jesus' own terms. He is the Son of God announcing the kingdom of heaven and inviting everybody to follow him into that kingdom. So when we ask God to forgive us our sins, we are asking to be accepted into his company of radical followers. We are asking that nothing come between us and our king. When, when we ask God to forgive us our sins, we are acknowledging the totality of our debt. We are confessing our inability to reconcile what we have done and what we have left undone. When we ask God for forgiveness, we are not asking for a soothed conscience, but a sanctified imagination to see and follow Jesus ever more closely. We are asking that our sinful rebellion be replaced with radical allegiance to our crucified and resurrected Messiah. It's from this vantage point of whole life discipleship that we must hear Jesus' command to pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We begin to understand that we cannot do one, we cannot know one without the other. The life of faithful obedience to Jesus involves this constant cycle of forgiveness and forgiving, of forgiving others and being forgiven, of receiving and giving grace. And of course, if we think about it, any long-term healthy relationship reveals that kind of cycle. We never arrive at a static point where forgiving or being forgiven is no longer necessary. In fact, the healthiest relationships of any kind are the ones that smoothly, constantly move through this cycle of forgiving and being forgiven. But of course, our relationship with God is a little different, at least, than other relationships. And so I think this is why Jesus goes on to tell a story to help us see the connection between being forgiven by God and forgiving others, to help us see this more clearly. The story comes in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. You can read it later this week if you want. I'm not going to read the whole thing now. I'll summarize it. Jesus picks up the theme of sin as debt. 
And Jesus says at the beginning of this passage that that the kingdom of heaven is kind of like a man, a a servant, who owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. This man could not pay back his debt, would never be able to pay back his debt. And so the king calls his servant before him and tells him that he's going to sell all of this man's possessions and all of his relatives in order to recoup some of the king's losses. Hearing this, the servant falls to the ground and begs the king for mercy. And the king responds. The king graciously cancels his servant's entire debt, setting him completely free. Anybody got some student loan that they like? Can we we feel this just a little bit? Can we just feel this a little bit? The man gets up. He's returning home when he bumps into one of his peers, a fellow servant to the king. It just so happens that that this servant owed the the first man a little bit of money, a hundred silver coins, a pittance in comparison to what the first man owed. And so the first man says, "Uh, I want you to repay me now. And And the second servant, I can't do it right now, but I'll get to it. I promise I'll pay you back. And the first man responds with anger and throws the second servant into prison, into debtor's prison. He says, you're going to stay here until you've been able to pay me back every last cent. Picking up in verse 32, Jesus says, then the master called the first servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, again, we're we're starting and we're trying to understand the deep connection between our forgiving others and God forgiving us. Now, maybe with Jesus' parable in front of us, we can start to see this connection more plainly. Why is the king angry? The king is angry because his servant didn't actually receive what the king offered. The king is angry because the first servant didn't actually receive what the king gave to him. The servant treated the king transactionally. As though it was somehow the servant's heartfelt begging that turned the tide and let him off the hook. I pleaded hard enough. I, I groveled enough. I felt guilty enough. I, built my, I, 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 I beat myself up enough. But of course, we know that it was the king's grace that set the man free. It wasn't the man who changed his own fate. Only the king could do that. Can I say it this way? Too often we come to God looking for a transaction when what God is offering us is complete transformation. The man came to receive a transaction. The king was trying to give him transformation. The servant experienced the king's forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free card, but the king saw it differently. After all, the king's forgiveness was costly. 10,000 bags of gold costly. Now, I don't know what the equivalent is, but I'm pretty sure it was a lot of money then and it's a lot of money now. 
It cost the king something to forgive this man. And so the king expected that this servant would be transformed by grace. That the grace the king showed the servant would become his own. And that that grace would get expressed in his life. In other words, I would say that the connection between being forgiven and offering forgiveness is the experience of forgiveness. The man experienced a transaction. The king wanted to give him an experience of complete transformation. The servant believed he had negotiated his canceled debt. It was, in Bonhoeffer's word, cheap grace. All it did was keep him out of jail. It changed nothing else in his life. This is not what Jesus is inviting us into. This is not what the kingdom of God is like. And this is certainly not what Jesus gave his life for. So if God is not transactional, then the the point of this verse is not that we have to forgive like God in order to be forgiven by God. That would be a transactional view of God. No, the, the thing Jesus is asking us to consider every time we pray is that we are receiving and depending on the costly grace of Jesus. Now here's how Bonhoeffer puts it. A little bit later on in his book. And Brittany, we can put that second slide up now. Bonhoeffer says, the the only person who has the right to say that he or she is justified by grace alone is the person who has left all to follow Christ. Such a person knows that the call to discipleship is a gift of grace and that the call is inseparable from the grace. Bonhoeffer says the only ones of us who can claim to have received the grace of Jesus are the ones who have left everything to know the grace of Jesus. When I bring my sins before God, the ways I've sinned before my creator, my neighbors, the ways I've sinned against myself, the ways I've sinned against the creation itself, when I bring these sins before God, what am I looking for? Am I looking for quick absolution? Am I looking for a religious transaction, my guilty feelings for God's mercy? Or when I ask for forgiveness, am I wading again into the deep and all-consuming grace of God? That's what Jesus is inviting us to. I reminded us a few minutes ago that the section here begins in verse 9 when Jesus says, and when you pray. Jesus is not saying that we pray the Lord's Prayer exactly like this every time we pray. Pastor Michelle made that very good point at the beginning of our series. But I do think that Jesus is assuming that when we pray, we are meditating on forgiveness. We are meditating on the grace of God. When we pray, there is intrinsic to our prayer a confession of sins. That reflects the way we are forgiving others. This is a lifelong process, amen? Amen. Some of our pain today runs incredibly deep for such valid reasons. Some of us have been terribly wronged. The injustice that some of us have known is unexplainable. 
the wickedness inflicted upon some of us unfathomable. What needs to be crystal clear this morning is that Jesus is not withholding forgiveness until you forgive perfectly like Jesus. Again, that would be a transactional view of what we find in this prayer. Instead, Jesus is inviting each of us into a life of discipleship in which forgiveness is always central. Jesus, in other words, is inviting you to healing and to freedom. The one who suffered this world's evil our enemies' violence, and the consequences of our sin, this one invites you to follow him for the rest of your life on the way of forgiveness. Again, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Forgiveness is never excusing the inexcusable. This is why it's so important to see the connection between God's forgiveness and ours. The fact that God applies grace to our debt does not change the pain that we have inflicted by our sin. That's still true. That's still real and has to be grappled with. When we follow Jesus along the way of forgiveness, when we extend grace to those who have sinned against us, we are absolutely not, please hear this, we are absolutely not excusing, rationalizing, or spiritualizing the behavior of those who have sinned against us. It is entirely possible in the way of Jesus to forgive without for even a second downplaying the impact of sin. And this is what the Lord's Prayer allows us to do. We forgive sin without ever excusing it. We extend grace without ever diminishing the pain of wickedness and injustice. To do anything less is to diminish Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Because it was there that we see most clearly sin for what it actually is. Evil, power, most thoroughly exposed, crashing upon the Savior's sinless body. And yet it is also here that forgiveness takes permanent root. That grace claims the power to define all of reality. Father, forgive them. The prayer that Jesus invites us to pray is a costly prayer. It requires us to believe that everything can be forgiven. And that is a costly thing to believe. All of our sins can be forgiven. All of the ways we have been sinned against. We cannot be glib about this. The weight of sin is tremendous. Our rebellion has done great damage to ourselves, to others, to the creation. And we have known the pain and the despair of being sinned against. Some of us profoundly so. Betrayal, abuse, abandonment. The debt that we owe and the debt we are owed cannot be reconciled by any force or wisdom of our own humanity. This is a costly 
prayer. And so we are right to pause. We are right to allow the words that Jesus teaches us to get stuck in our throat on occasion. Oh, but once we have stepped into these waters of grace, once we have left everything else behind, once we have sold everything to possess the pearl of great price, once we have died to ourselves, once we have lost everything in order to gain Jesus, once we have seen truly and soberly that God, through the death and the resurrection of his son, has forgiven us. Once we have experienced forgiveness, we begin to develop a taste for it. Once we have experienced not a transaction, but transformational grace, we begin to get thirsty for grace. Grace. Forgiveness starts to become a part of what we are hungry and thirsty for every single day. We develop a taste for freedom. Because God has forgiven your sins. Jesus says, you can forgive those who have sinned against you. The God who has the power to cancel your debts has empowered you to forgive those who are indebted to you. I want to know whose debt you can forgive today. Maybe not entirely. Maybe not at all. Maybe just by praying that you would be open to the possibility one day of being able to forgive. Come to the table this morning hungry and thirsty for the Lord's grace. Come with a taste for forgiveness. Come ready to wade into the waters of grace once again. Come among this company of sinners and rebels, forgiven by our gracious God. And come too, willing to be transformed by the Lord's forgiveness. Come anticipating new healing and restoration in your wounded heart. Come vulnerable to what the Holy Spirit desires to do in you through your small Steps of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am aware that when we talk about forgiveness, that when there are more than Two of us in the room at the time, we are talking about painful memories. We are talking about unjust and wicked circumstances. We are talking about profound griefs and wounds. We are recalling senses of isolation, experiences of abandonment. And so if it were anyone else asking us to forgive, I would be prone to pull back, to hedge my bets. I would be 
prone to say a little less. But this morning we are invited by the crucified Messiah. We are invited by the one who was betrayed, who was abandoned, by the one who bore the brunt of our sin, by the one who allowed this world's injustice and rebellion to come heaped upon your shoulders. So, Spirit of God, I ask that you would compel us not to turn back from Jesus' invitation today. That we would hear clearly and see clearly the one who is inviting us to forgive. That she would allow us to trust you because you are good. And so, for every sister and brother this morning who has struggled to forgive, who has known countless logical reasons not to forgive. I pray, Holy Spirit, in your power that you would allow us to hear Jesus' invitation and that you would give us the courage to respond today. You tell us that if Jesus sets us free, we are free indeed. And yet some of us do not feel free this morning. The, the wounds, the burdens that have been heaped upon us have kept us from experiencing the freedom that you have won for us. And so again, without downplaying for even a moment the power of sin, the way that evil and wickedness has impacted some of us today, without downplaying that even a moment, God, I pray for freedom today. I pray for grace today. I pray for forgiveness today. I pray that that tight spot would become unwound. I pray that that complicated place would have the light of your wisdom shine upon it. I pray that the place in us, some of us, not all of us, where there is a stubborn refusal to open clenched hands to you, that you would pry open our fingers today. I pray that you would be gentle, but as you are in these scriptures, that you would be direct with this invitation. So call us to the table to hear and to know again that we are forgiven by our Creator God. Not as a transaction, but as a word that can transform our entire beings. And call us to the table vulnerable to you today. Willing to allow your grace to so saturate our minds and our hearts and our bodies we will have a new imagination of what it could look like to forgive in some very particular ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.